And so, here we are. The WB logo is spinning into place and has stopped right now. Actually, I'm not sure if this thing is even... Yeah, now it's revolving around again. Spinning around. Music just came up. This is the Legendary Pictures logo, I think. Yeah, it's spinning. Yeah, here it is. I think it's pretty obvious that what Zack Snyder intended to do in making this film was something that immediately, from the word go, set this film apart from that which had come before. And this is a pretty unique way of, uh, of doing it. Uh, the music starts early, it shows us the logos, but also it, the, the, the color forms of everything suggest that we're dealing with completely different uh, aesthetics now in this film as opposed to as opposed to previous films so that right there now what we're seeing right now for those of you who are just listening and not watching is Lara and uh, she's in labor with uh, Kal-El and again it's setting up the fact that we're seeing Superman being being born which is a new thing for for film this is a new thing that I honestly don't think we've we've seen this in, in in any any comic book, any any TV show, any film, anything ever. The uh, production design, the backgrounds, the the hovering robots, the costumes, all of this is part of the broader mission statement that this is a reboot, and it it even starts as I said with with new life with the the birth of Kal-El and now we cut to see Krypton and god I just love this sort of birthright inspired Krypton with the sh but it still has the pre-crisis shattered moon and everything god I just love it love it love it love it now the reason this scene with Jarell appearing before the council works for me is because one of the kind of one of the problems that you sort of have to confront whenever you whenever you deal with Superman's origin, if the Kryptonians are so damn smart, how is it that they don't already know that that that, that Krypton has an expiration date? And what this scene and others in the movie, but what this scene in particular lays out, is that the Council is somewhat living in denial. But as much as anything, they've got political reasons to deny simple reality and I'm I'm not gonna bash on either party specifically except to say that in America I think there are instances of plenty where both parties live in abject denial of simple reality just so they can win elections anyway enough of that Zod just stormed in he shot one of the council members and he's basically launching his coup and one of the things that become very apparent is that Kryptonian society <clears throat> is anything but a utopia. This is not... This isn't some magical wonderland where everybody's dreams come true and they have no problems. They've got at least as many of the, ha the same hang-ups as Earth culture does, possibly even even more. And that that that's brought across in this scene. And I, and I think, actually, subsequent scenes kind of develop how much of a maverick... Zod is, but how much of a maverick he isn't. But at least at the outset, what it tells us is that 
You've taken up the sword the usual relationship that I think most people expect these days from Superman and Zod the friendship that was implied in Superman the movie is again implied here it's not we don't we don't really know the specifics of it but it's 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 evident that Jarrell and Zod have history that that just goes way far back they don't seem to develop it in the same way that Smallville did where it's actually very it's very explicit just what exactly drove them apart so the other thing that this that this does is that it sets up Jarrell as an action hero um, somewhat it's sort of Jarrell man of action he's he's a man of principle forced to take action and you can see on his face this is something that I guess he's trained himself to do but this isn't his native vocation so this war golly Jesus war I mean look at that just great. I mean, sometimes there are going to be parts of this commentary where, guys, honestly, there's there's just not a whole lot to say. I mean, all you can really do is just sit back, watch, and enjoy. And this is kind of one of them, except that, again, it sort of goes back to the world-building uh, aspect of things, that this is not Richard Donner's Krypton. And honestly, there's a limit to the degree that it's even the birthright Krypton. This is Zack Snyder's Krypton, and there's a pretty clear birthright influence to it. But at the same rate, this is an alien culture in a way that Superman the movie's Krypton just wasn't. It didn't... It, it just kind of felt like it was a very high-tech sort of Victorian era. It's just they had... A higher degree of technological whoozy whatsis than we do, but you could kind of compare it somewhat to the Victorians. This, this Krypton is motivated by fundamentally different social mores, uh, different cultural norms, different, different fashions, different architecture, different technology. All of these things go into shaping who and what this this iteration of Krypton is, and we're. It's just, it's not hard to see what Zack Snyder was up to here. And it's why I, I never really connected with the arguments that some people made that the origin should just be bypassed because most people are, already know it. Well, I think, odd, oddly enough, Superman Returns and Smallville both prove that Superman's origin is not now as well known as it was... 30 years ago, 40 years ago, 50 years ago. You know, it was... Hell, it was probably part of the just day-to-day -day lexicon, but, you know, we live in a time when the origin, it, it can't just be explained. It's not enough that somebody get on screen and talk about it. It has to be shown. You need to know what the stakes are. For the uninitiated, for non-Superman fans... They need to know where Superman is coming from, right? What is his history? What is his origin story? How did all this come about? Veteran Superman fans, they need to know the context. It's not enough to simply know that... And for the sake of, uh, of making a film, it's not enough to know that Superman is the last survivor in a, 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 of an alien world. 
we need to know about the about the context of it all and kudos to Zack Snyder for for pulling that off now again just this is just for reference not to sound like Arnold Schwarzenegger doing total recall Jarrell is is uh, prepping the ship the pod to uh, put Kal-El in he and are just going back to back with each other back and forth with each other I should say looking at uh, outline of the planet Earth anyway so for reference just to make sure we're all we're all still on the same page here but as I said the necessity of doing a reboot I'm convinced it it was absolutely imperative you know a whole lot of people watched Smallville not even knowing it was a Superman story until later on whether it was because they were told or they eventually just pieced it together you know it need this needed to be out there um, as I said it needed to be made explicit for for veteran fans and explicit for for the uninitiated there's this theory that you know we've had the the origin story done about a zillion times in the past few years but my argument is this we and by this I mean wide audiences we have not seen a new Superman origin since 1978 right that's just not something that wide audiences have been able to see Lois and Clark was in the grand scheme of things it was not exactly a hit show not tons of people were watching it and in any case it didn't really center on Superman's origin it had Kryptonian elements to it but you didn't really get the A to Z picture that Man of Steel gives us Superman the animated series it did give an A to Z origin but number one that was what 1996 number two it was something that it was on TV it didn't have the same kind of market penetration that a feature film is gonna have fewer people saw Superman the animated series than saw uh, Man of Steel there's just no two ways about it Smallville same kind of thing we did we didn't really get the the same kind of A to Z origin in Smallville ultimately Smallville as a show is the is about how the teenager Clark Kent grows up to become the adult Superman all right you take everything else away and that's what it is we don't really see in real time the same kind of origin the same kind of presentation of the origin that we're seeing right now with Clark being placed in the sh in the ship by Jarrell and Lara and then being launched off we don't really see that in Smallville as such alright so as I said I mean people want to and then of course this this ties into the comics too which again wide audiences wouldn't have seen I mean you go on down the line the last time wide audiences were treated to Oh, and this is great. This is sort of the Apocalypse Now shot of the movie. Oh, God. I, yeah, I love that. But anyway, the last time wide audiences saw something like that was in 1978. And it was, I think, Superman Returns, the lasting legacy of it is it proved, whether it, whether it intended to or not, that a new origin story needed to be done. And I think one of the main reasons that movie failed tanked it lost money at the box office it was not successful was because it didn't give an access point for viewers it was essentially a continuation it was picking up somewhat where superman 2 
left off. It's a sequel to something that, I'm sorry, most people under the age of 30, just the average moviegoer under the age of 30, hadn't seen. Most of them hadn't seen Superman the movie. Most of them hadn't seen Superman 2. The best you could hope for is that they may have had a passing familiarity with Chris Reeve in, in, in the suit, and then possibly the uh, John Williams uh, main title, and then that's about it. That, and even that's kind of pushing it, but it, it was... Anyway, the point is... Man of Steel is the reboot film that we should have gotten back in 2006. So here we are. Zod and Jarrell are are face-to-face with one another. And Zod even outright says that this is is heresy, which again goes back to the world building that Goyer and uh, Snyder are attempting to do. In some way or another, this is religiously anathema to... To, to Zod's understanding of, of how people should procreate. Now, this whole battle scene with with Zod, again, it goes back to a sort of pre-crisis thing of... I guess Jarrell just being sort of a, a man of action. He's not, he, he's not the simple student of history that John Burns uh, Jarrell was. He's not... He's not... It, it, I guess... Maybe the the best comparison is to is to the pre-crisis where, and I think it was Michael Bailey who said this. The pre-crisis Jarrell was kind of he was the MacGyver of Krypton, and if you give the guy a pair of tweezers, uh, and an old iPod, he I mean, he he can build a nuclear fucking reactor. I mean, this guy just he 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 was everything and. And I think a whole lot of those World of Krypton stories actually showed him um, doing more than just scientific stuff. He actually was a man of action. He had car chases. He had, I think he had gun battles and other things. I mean, this this iteration of Drell, it's just very much in line with all of that. So, anyway, so here's Jarrell. He's dead. He just got perforated by Zod's I don't even know what the hell to call that. Retractable gauntlet sword. Now, one of the things that this movie carried forward that honestly I could have done without is the House of L family crest symbol of hope stuff. Basically, the Superman symbol having a, a, uh, an origin related directly to to Krypton. And... As I've said before, that that's something that Richard Donner invented for Superman the movie. And in that context, I guess I'm okay with it. I don't really care. But it's just, it's sort of become part of the official dogma now. And guys, I'm sorry, that's something that's only come about in the last 40-some years. Right? Prior to that, it was just... A symbol. The S stands for Superman. So let's get down to business. You know, there's nothing else more to it than that. And Snyder, I think, took these symbols in a very creative direction. But even this is still somewhat parasitic of Donner's idea of everyone having their own symbol. And I don't know. It's it's just one of those things that maybe I'm just going to have to get used to as as a fan. This is maybe this is just where things are going. I don't know, but.
Anyway, so we've got Zod on trial before the uh, council of people with huge-ass fucking hats. And this is one of those moments in the movie that really... It really could have just completely bogged down. I mean, because if you think about how cinematically uninteresting a trial is... God, that's a big guy in the background. That's just a big son of a bitch. Is that... Is that... Like, computer graphic stuff? God, I love that. That that nod, that or that shake of his head that Zod gave to Lara. You think you can hide him? And he just shakes his head. And I guess this is about as good a time as any to talk about uh, Michael Shannon being cast as Zod. Now, I know him mostly from uh, Boardwalk Empire, and I'd only just started watching Boardwalk Empire about the time that he was announced to play Zod, and I seen him, you know, in interviews and stuff, and he just kind of seemed like he had this specifically East Coast vibe to him that I just wasn't at all sure would suit the character. Now, watching a couple of episodes of Boardwalk Empire, what you find out real quick is, yeah, Michael Shannon was absolutely up to the task of playing this part, but I'm just saying that at the time, for a brief time, I was kind of a naysayer. I was a little bit of a skeptic. And, um, as I said, I didn't even need to see this movie to find out that Michael Shannon is pitch-perfect casting. Just, like I said, watching a couple episodes of Boardwalk Empire, that's all I needed. Now, that kind of leads into, um, I guess the choice of Zod being used in this movie as as the baddie. And to me, this is just an instance of Zack Snyder having to play the hand that he was dealt. The fact is that wide audiences had some recollection of Superman Returns, a movie in which, as far as action is concerned, jack fucking shit happened. Brian Singer had a creative and financial blank check from Warner Brothers to do within reason, basically, anything he wanted to do. And his big... His big move was basically to pit Superman against Lex Luthor, again, and not really show us anything interesting in the process. And whether anybody likes it or not, Zack Snyder doing a movie where... uh, an origin story where it's set up that... Well, first of all, that we skip the the origin, and then second of all, that Superman fights, in quote marks, fights um, a human adversary, and then we save the, the actual supervillains for a sequel. This is just one of those, it was not an option for Snyder. He didn't have a choice except to retell the origin, number one, and then number two, put Superman up against a superpowered villain. So, he had to play the hand that he was dealt. Now... I think a relevant question to ask is, did it have to be Zod? I mean, basically the themes that are kind of touched upon in this movie are humanity accepting aliens. And being as Zod was done pretty memorably in Superman 2, and then, depending on how you look at it, twice on Smallville, 
Not to mention who knows how many times in the comics. Did we seriously need a movie where, once again, the main heavy is Zod? I don't know. I mean, if, if people are willing to, to have serious problems with that, it's not that big a deal to me, but I... I can understand if it's a problem for other people. So, anyhow, so this whole stuff of uh, Clark finding, you know, working odd jobs just here and there, things like fishing boats and you know being a dock worker, being a, a busboy and run down cafes and dives and stuff like that. This is going to sound weird, but I could have watched a whole movie of that stuff. Maybe it's just a Smallville fan in me, but I kind of liked seeing... I shouldn't say Clark at his lowest, but basically a sort of aimless drifter Clark, like the David Banner uh, Clark, in a, in, a, in a sense, that he basically just goes <clears throat> from odd job to odd job, and inevitably he loses it. He loses his job because he needs to perform a rescue that, honestly, would out him before he's ready. And so, I can... Uh, God, this is such a... He just tears that door off. God, I love it. Just look at that. And he's on fire, too. It's just... I don't completely understand the story logic of that, uh, of his body catching fire, but I guess, whatever. It, it just... It looks cool, so I'm willing to... Willing to let that slide. I got to tell you, I was watching. First watched this in theaters. I had my girlfriend with me, and as I said, this whole up until the moment that he gets his uniform. I mean, I am completely on board with everything. Well, pretty much everything. All of the the narrative present day stuff. I'm completely on board with that. Now I'll deal with the flashback stuff in a minute. But uh, I just love this stuff. You know, it's just sort of the pre-Superman Superman. And we can see that it's part of his basic makeup. This scene starts to suggest it, but it's developed later on. It's part of Clark's essential makeup that he's going to use his abilities to help other people. It's not that somebody tells him to do that. In fact, people tell him not to do that. But his own conscience is almost preternaturally formed. He can't sit idly by while he has these abilities and just and just let the world pass him by. And anyway, here we go. This is the uh, first of several uh, flashbacks that are done throughout this film. Now, all of them are well are all well written. They're all well acted. Uh, the effects I got I have no criticism of them. On and on and on. Right, and all of that, I've, they're they're fine. The problem is that I'm such a Smallville devotee that just watching this stuff, it just kind of feels like this is stuff that I'm already intimately familiar with, and this is the part of the movie where I kind of am, you know, just tapping my finger against my armrest a little bit. Yeah, you know, let's move on now. This scene and scenes like it, where Clark is running out of his classroom and all that stuff, it's not for me. It's for wide audiences who don't know jack fucking shit about Superman. They need to see all of this. They need to see where Clark is coming from. 
And um, oh, that's just a cool effect. I like the, I love the way they do heat vision in this. And I happen to think it's long overdue that Clark doesn't have sort of laser beam vision that he or. And even as for as much as I liked it at the time, that kind of shimmering, displaced heat kind of thing that they did in Smallville. He actually shoots fire out of his fucking eyes here, sort of like Cyclops style. And the teacher only got a little bit of it on the doorknob. We see a lot more of it later on. I just liked that. I also liked, again, on a strictly technical level, I like this scene. Martha... This is not the first time she's had to reach Clark this way. She's had to she's had to talk him down a lot of times. She's the only one who could. And it's hard not to get caught up in the especially Diane Lane. I mean, she just ugh, look at this. She just sells it. Look at that. Man. It's I'm sure she's a mother herself, and maybe that's what she's channeling here. But um, it's just... I just kind of feel like on some level, I'm sort of beyond that. Now, here's a part that really pissed a lot of people off. Apparently, Superman movies aren't supposed to have songs in them. All right? Um, Unless Lois Lane is driving around in a car next to an exploding gas station. Superman movies are not supposed to have um, songs in them. Unless, of course, Lana Lang is riding around in, uh, in Brad's car, but... Superman movies aren't supposed to have songs in them. Anyway, so... And it looks, I'm guessing, by the fact that this is a song by Chris Cornell, and just the way everything looks in this town, I'm guessing he's in Seattle? I don't know. Could go, I don't know. Could go a couple of different ways. But the rain and everything, and just the way that things look, just kind of drizzly, nasty weather and it just looks kind of like Seattle so anyway I don't know now we're coming up this uh, another uh, flashback is about to start here this is the uh, bus crash and this is actually a little bit of a revision that we're starting to get into territory that really bothered some people this I, this part actually did somewhat bother me I like the idea of Clark having friends. You know, there are people that, you know, he can reach out to, connect to, be friends with, and of all people, Pete Ross should be one of them. Now, if what they needed was just a generic bully, then why not write Whitney Fordman into the thing, alright? Or why not come up with a new character, someone else who can be a bully? But even though it didn't last, and you kind of get the idea that maybe Pete has been covering for Clark, and they definitely did make peace after this, I mean, really, did, did it have to be Pete? But, I don't know. At least Pete is in live action, so... A, a film, anyway, so at least there's that. And then there's Lana, who's a virtual non-entity in the movie, which, after seven seasons and five episodes of Smallville, maybe that's... Maybe that's not a bad thing, but nevertheless, it just... It just kind of feels like parts of the Smallville growing up stuff, we got what we needed to get out of them in order to further the themes of the movie, the, uh, develop the conflicts of this film, but it just sort of feels like there's not... 
we're not necessarily getting a full impression of what Smallville and growing up in Smallville was like for Clark. And I think this film I don't know as I want to say it suffers from you know, from that loss. But anyway, now as to the controversy at hand. Anybody, or at least most people, on that bus would kind of need to suspect that Clark is different. There's something, not just, you know, he's extraordinarily athletic or something like that. He's, he has some kind of ability. And this is a problem for a lot of fans that basically what it requires is that all, or maybe not all, maybe not even most, but at least some, some people in Smallville have to be somewhat co-conspirators and and maintaining this secret identity angle. Now, my argument is, and it's kind of half half ass, is this is no more a problem here than it would be in John Byrne's reboot, where Superman, where Clark, he basically was photographed lots. Oh yeah, geez, this is this is a real moment. Man, just that one word, maybe. Boy, that broke the internet in fucking half. Alright, I'm going to pick up the Smallville thing in just a minute. i got to tackle this Jonathan Kent thing. The entire point of everything that Jonathan is telling Clark here is that the world isn't ready to know that somebody like him is out there. Somebody that has his kinds of powers and gifts and abilities. Mankind isn't ready to see something like this yet. They're not ready. They're not ready for him. That's Jonathan's point. And Clark, on the one hand, he loves his father, but he has a. As I said, it's almost a preternaturally developed conscience that he needs to use his powers to help people, and that puts him in conflict with his father. This is. Jonathan said maybe. Clark said, should I have just let people die? And Jonathan Kent says, maybe. And the real issue here is that Jonathan, he doesn't know. He doesn't have all the answers. He's not perfect. He's just trying to do the best he can, raising somebody that, honestly... The rules don't apply to Clark. Day-to-day etiquette doesn't apply to Clark. The law doesn't apply to Clark. These things apply to Clark only to the extent that he permits them to. The realization of that, when people realize this guy can do anything he wants, anytime he wants, and there's nobody on this planet who'd be able to stop him, the reaction to that is ultimately what Jonathan Kent fears. He doesn't know what the future is going to bring. He just doesn't want anything bad to happen to his son. He's more concerned with his son's well-being and, nor- and normalcy than he is about than possibly about other people dying. 
if it comes to that. And he doesn't he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't have all the answers. He's not a perfect man. And I think the entire point of this movie isn't just that, you know, we get to see Superman's origin and there's a shit ton of cool fight scenes. You could argue that Clark's character arc throughout this whole thing, when you strip everything else away, Clark learns that Jonathan Kent was wrong. That's the point. Clark asked, should I, have, should I just let people die? And Jonathan says, maybe. The entire rest of the movie is a repudiation of Jonathan Kent's point. Not a repudiation of Jonathan Kent himself, just a repudiation of his point. And I think that if all you do <clears throat> is just react to one line out of context in a trailer, look, I can understand that, you know, we all want what's best for Superman. Believe me, I understand that. But it just kind of looked like people just wanted to pick on this movie sight unseen when the only real agenda I had for this movie was I was determined to give it a chance, a fair chance. I wasn't determined to like it. I wasn't determined to hate it. I wanted to give it a fair day. And, oh, this is great. He pushes Clark and Clark just doesn't budge. That's just great. Gotta love it. And Clark is still the passive one. He's still the passive one. Look at this. Sorry, I'm getting a text message. Sorry about this. Sorry, that was my girlfriend. Sorry about that. Okay, just so this doesn't happen again, I'm going to turn my phone off. Sorry about that. Alright, so here we go. Lois Lane is arriving and she is being helped off the plane by Clark. Their first meeting. And I just love how nonchalant it is. Uh, Clark has basically infiltrated the place. He knows what's going on. And I guess I just like that it's underplayed. You know, I mean, we know... This is another good line. Be careful, they're heavy, and he's just <laughs> so careless. I love it. We know where things are going between Superman and and Lois. So the fact that their meeting is just so just touch and go. It's it's underplayed, and it's I don't know. I just I thought that really worked well for the film. Now this scene and others like it. See, I don't, on the one hand, I don't want—I don't want to be too critical of it, because I don't want to give the haters ammo. But on the other hand, there are parts of this movie that feel—they just feel written. You know, they feel staged. They feel like a script. When you read a script, and you—I don't know about you, but sometimes when I read people's movie scripts, it just feels—it sometimes just doesn't feel like a film. It feels like a script. And parts of this film. 
are like that. And that scene with uh, Lois and that soldier just walking side by side where he's hopefully expositing, you know, useful information, it just kind of feels too scripty to me. Now, this scene where you got Professor, Hamm- Pro- Professor Hamilton, Professor Hamilton, Lois, and then some soldiers wandering around in the background looking at those sonar images, that actually feels like a movie scene to me. So... It's not a consistent thing always, but it's just now and then, sometimes things feel a little, like I said, just a little too scripty. And so, anyhow. One of the things, and, and I've been blabbering right over it, but just a while ago, Lois said, she mentioned something about measuring dicks and everything, and that kind of leads in, I mean, maybe this is hypocritical coming from me, because I run a podcast that's just nonstop profanity and everything, you know, you find all the cocksucker motherfucker dicks and tits and all the other stuff that I talk about, but I've said from the outset this is not necessarily a family podcast, or if you think that this is a family podcast based upon how I talk, I'm not really sure how to react to that. Uh, how do you speak to your children? But um, I don't think that's something that belongs in a Superman film. I recommended. I, I, sorry, I did not recommend this movie to someone who has children simply because of the language. And to me, that was just. This is one of those things that I. I seem to be the only person talking about, but. Um. I think a Superman film, you should be able to give this to anybody, anybody. It should be as all ages appropriate as a Pixar film is, and this isn't. Oh, God, that's a cool scene, though, where Clark just melts right through the ice. It's blinking, you miss it. But, yeah, there it is. God, that's just it's just a cool little moment. It's a cool moment. Love it. In fact, I love this whole sequence with, you know, Clark. He's exploring the ship, and then you've got Lois. She's wandering, in the, wandering around in the background. She's trailing him. I like the music. I like the staging of it. I like, I like the sets, the production design. I like the ship. I like um, the lighting of it. I mean, God, this is just this is great. So I, I've got to take a drink. I've been running my mouth now for how long has it been? Oh, great! The better part of forty minutes. And anyway, my mouth is uh, getting dry. So I need hold on. That's another good moment. I'm kind of a sucker, to be honest with you. I'm kind of a sucker for any scene where Superman discovers his true origins. There's something about that to me that I, I don't know why. It's just there's something that speaks to me. I don't know why. But, uh, and this actually kind of goes back to one of my one of the few problems I have with the pre-crisis Superman is that he, he had, I guess, super memory or perfect recall, whatever you want to call it. God... And again, these just these ships. God, I love these ships. I love the way the ships look in this film. Anyway, uh, but the pre-crisis Superman, he remembered being on Krypton, even though. And this is another shot. Lois just lifting her camera up, and she's climbing upwards. And I, I just remember, like I was watching this in in the movie theater, and I knew at that point the narrative was going to go a place where people maybe weren't prepared for, and I just loved it. But anyway, like I said. I'm going to get this out. Pre-Crisis Superman. He remembered being on Krypton. And so you never really had that revelatory scene where... Or 
Yeah, I think revelatory is the right word. Superman basically discovers his true origin. I mean, I think there's a Golden Age issue, the first appearance of Kryptonite. Superman number 50-something or 100 or something. I don't know. Apart from that, but that's not really the Silver Age or the Bronze Age. It's just you don't really get that. And uh, I just love it when these scenes come up because you can say so much about who Superman is as a person based upon how he reacts that open pod, I have to wonder what the hell that's about. I mean, obviously there's another Kryptonian out there, or there was, setting up a sequel, but a lot of people have thought that that could that could be an access point for, uh, for Kara. I don't know. I don't know how she'd be his cousin, but whatever. Maybe that's not an absolute, but whatever. Anyway, and so here we are. Um, Lois is being attacked by the robot. Clark comes to the rescue. He has to uh, kind of wrestle with it a little bit before he finally just takes the robot apart and it was in this moment it's funny uh, John Burns Man of Steel showed uh, a sequence where Clark and his uh, regular civvies rescues Lois from uh, well actually what he actually rescues is a uh, crashing experimental space plane aboard which was Lois right and so we have an aircraft of a sort in the background in this shot. And then, obviously, Clark is, in a sense, rescuing Lois. I mean, that robot probably was going to kill her. But this was also the first indication that, yeah, once again, his first, I guess, like, public rescue, it was once again going to involve an aircraft of some sort, as well as rescuing Lois. But it was... What this was ultimately building to was going to be something different from what John Byrne did, different from what the movies up to this point have done, different from the comics. I mean, honestly, I think the only real comparison is Smallville. And the fact is, the Superman mythos in the past, I don't know, maybe 15 or 20 years... The trend has been toward making Lois integral to... Uh, I, I almost want to say Superman's stability. I guess I could... I don't know. The Superman identity? The, the comics uh, definitely set that up that uh, Lois was a sustaining influence for Clark. She was something that just kept him grounded. Lois and Clark made Lois a sort of unintentional collaborator in establishing who and what Superman's all about. She did it oftentimes without knowing. Um, the best example I can think of, I'm blanking on which one it was, but it's a first season episode and the, you know, the Daily Planet staff are sitting around a table uh, gambling, really. They're playing poker. And Lois says that Superman would not cheat at cards, and because of that, Clark, tempted though he is, doesn't cheat at cards, because Lois says that Superman is all about fair play, wouldn't do that. And then Smallville made Lois integral to forming, ultimately, Superman. I mean, she helped brainstorm uh ways in which Clark could go public while still having a secret identity. Man of Steel is, I think, less controversial than it would have been because Smallville 
frankly did it first, you know. And so this really didn't bother me. Anyway, so I've been, uh, again, blabbering. Lois basically tried to give her story to Perry about the alien uh, spacecraft and then also her mysterious rescuer who refused to publish it. And so now here she is giving it to some hack, Michael Moore type, or the equivalent of Michael Moore in journalism. He's really more of a documentarian, but whatever. And uh, basically she wants the story to be out there. And... Really not a whole lot to say about that. This is another good scene. Again, I am a sucker for scenes where Superman discovers his true origins. And it's funny. This is one of those scenes that you could connect most directly back to Superman the movie. But in a more, I guess, like, like in an indirect way, right? Um... Superman doesn't need to be brainwashed on this ship for 12 years in order to, I don't know, be motivated to use his powers to help others. He's already there. What Jarrell wants to enable him to do, and again, this is going to come into play later on in the film, what Jarrell wants to enable him to do is do so openly using a symbol, and a symbol that should mean a lot to Clark, both philosophically the concept of hope but then also biologically the concept of this being a symbol of the house of L and if I had to guess I'd say that's the main reason why Snyder set that up it want, it, it, he wants the S symbol to be emblematic of what Superman stands for hope and also where Superman comes from and you're not going to get that outside of Outside of making this a family crest. So, as I say, on that basis, I can accept it here. It's just, it's one of those concepts that, honestly, I'm getting a, a little bit tired of. But, um, anyhow. But this whole scene, the, just the aesthetics of it, and the sort of... I don't even know what the hell to call this. It's it's like a three-dimensional etch-a-sketch. It's, it's just, it's great. Love it, love it, love it, love it. And the fact that a society as, a, as advanced and developed as Krypton still, in a certain sense, they still have use of pictographic history. Again, it goes back to the world building that Snyder is uh, attempting to do here. And I do think it's telling that just the abject lack of color through most of anything that relates to Krypton, whether it's uh, the planet itself, their technology their costumes, by which I mean their fashions. There's just there's just no color there, you know? Which I think, obviously, there's symbolism wrapped up in that. And then, of course, when... And we haven't gotten to this point yet, but once Jarrell unveils the suit, you can see now that it's it really is the blending together. Of, there is so much symbolism now tied up in the suit that wouldn't necessarily have been available to Snyder otherwise. Like I said, the S symbol stands stands for hope. That's what that that's that's Superman's emblem. That's what he gives to the world. Where he comes from, the S symbol 
it relates to his family, to his biology. But Krypton is obviously a pretty desolate and colorless world. And so it being red and yellow and with all those deep blues. This is Jor-El's approximation of human fashion. So in a, in a weird kind of way... And now we come to it. This is the unveiling of the suit. God, this is such a good moment in the film. God, love it. Love it, love it, love it. He's about to, un he's about to open the hatch. Yeah, there it goes. There it is. Dun-da-da-da. Good moment. It's a great moment. But anyway, so you have a fundamentally Kryptonian object being given all of this color. And like I said, I mean, just the symbolism of it. Like I said... There's the symbol, hope, what Clark gives to the world. There's the symbol as the House of El, which is which is where Superman comes from. And then there's all the color on there, which is apparently foreign to, to Krypton, which blends, uh, which is referential to uh, Earth culture. This suit is. It's just it's the merging together of of all of the values that Jarrell wants to impart to Superman, and it's important to emphasize that Snyder and Goyer have a fundamentally different take on Superman than uh, Richard Donner and God knows Brian Singer, both of whom seem to seem to subscribe to the savior protector aspect of superman and you know what that's fine i've got nothing nothing against that but this seems to be embracing superman as leader and his job his mandate isn't exclusively to save mankind from from themselves from you know to foil crimes to perform rescues I mean, yeah, that's part of the job description, too. You know, and he's not just there to protect Earth from alien invaders. Although, yes, obviously, that's that, that's part of... That's that's part of the uh, job... God, this is just such a great moment. Superman learning how to fly. Again, we don't... Even Smallville, oddly enough, didn't really give us a whole lot of this. It's just the joy that he has in learning how to fly... That would be any of us, you know. You can fly. Ah, oh, it's just such a good moment. The freedom of it, the exhilaration. I mean, Cavill just... First off, he just kills it in this entire film. And I, it pains me that I'm only just now getting to him, but oddly enough, I can't get to him just yet. But I mean, he just sells the, the joy and the exhilaration of it. You know, you can fly. And everything that means, the freedom of it, ah, it's just great. But anyway, this Superman, ultimately, what Jarrell wants him to do is lead mankind into a better tomorrow. Not in the tyrannical, despotic sense of Jarrell from Smallville, originally, but more in the sense that mankind is capable of doing so many great things, they just have foibles that have bothered them up to this point and Superman as an outsider who's lived among them can bring across the best of Krypton the best of humanity and lead them into a better tomorrow and ultimately this kind of aspirational take on the character is 
it actually sort of reminds me of Grant Morrison's All-Star Superman, and not just because Jarrell actually used some of his dialogue, but more that it's not... Look, anybody can copy dialogue into a script. That's not the thing. It's a consistent message spread throughout the entire movie. Superman isn't just here to solve all of humanity's problems for them. He's here to equip them, to enable them, and help them along the way. And the best you could say is that that's something that Donner only really paid lip service to. But And God, that was another good shot. I talked right over it. Superman zooming right above the Earth. Now, this was another problem for people. Lois basically walking backwards through uh, Clark's uh, employment history and eventually winding up in Smallville, eventually winding up in I, at, at IHOP talking to Pete, and then eventually ending up on the Kent farm. And, guys, look, Lois is a Pulitzer Prize winning superstar journalist, right? She's not an idiot. She would figure, she would put the pieces together. She would follow the pieces back. She would know. It, it works, it, it serves her as a character because it, I'm not saying that she looks stupid otherwise, and I think, you know, people mean well when they say that, but she doesn't look stupid in the traditional presentation of all of this, but this just helps emphasize her intellect. You know, she's not, she's not a name at the Daily Planet for no reason. And then this is the moment when it became very ob- obvious. Lois is going to be in on the ground floor of his secret identity. That, or there simply isn't going to be a secret identity. Um, and, I, and at the time, I was actually afraid that that's the direction the movie was going to go. Watching this scene, I was thinking, is Clark going to be outed? And that really would have been the jump the shark moment for me, to be honest with you. And I thought that's what this scene was originally... The first time I saw it in theaters, I thought that's what this scene was setting up. And again, it emphasizes the conflicts that that Clark is facing. Jonathan, he loved Clark, he took care of Clark, but he might have done too good a a job at making Clark cautious, making him careful and then here we are flashback Clark and Clark and Jonathan just at each other's throats and honestly Clark is acting like a little bratty teenager and that's just how teenagers are I mean um, like I said I mean Clark has a preternatural sense of right and wrong and personal responsibility, charity, helping others, compassion. But that doesn't mean he that he can't manifest all the same basic foibles as any other brat of a teenager. And I just, I don't understand the controversy behind the scene. In fact, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to go through the whole thing. Kevin Costner, people have bitched and complained about... Kevin Costner, you know, he's not as good a Jonathan as Glenn Ford was. And I have to ask, you know, which of Glenn Ford's two scenes are you comparing that to? You know? I mean, look, the motherfucker, look, he did a good job, but he was in a whopping two scenes in that movie. Jonathan, 
he has what, like six, seven, eight in this in this movie or more? I mean, he's central to this to this film. You know, in a way, I mean, look, push comes to shove, you could you could cut all or most of Glenn Ford's lines from Superman the movie and miss not much. You know? Basically, you are here for a reason. And that's it, really, is that's all Glenn Ford contributed to Superman the movie that is indispensable. Jonathan is not so easily separated from this film. And here we see Jonathan's ideals, his principles, have so completely shaped who Clark is as a direct result of this scene that it's... <clears throat> Look, I'm not saying that he has to be your favorite Jonathan Kent ever, or you don't know what the fuck you're talking about, but, I mean, can't you at least see what they were trying to do? Jonathan lived his life on principle. Jonathan sacrificed his life on principle. And Clark... Clark let him do it. On principle. Jonathan's principle. And as I've said, the entire point of Clark's character arc in this film is finding out, you know what? Jonathan Kent was wrong. That's the point. That's the point. He had good intentions. He was a good man. He, he tried to do what he thought was the right thing but he was just wrong that's all this scene uh, Steve Lombard look I've got nothing against this actor but it just he doesn't look the way I think Steve Lombard should so that's me being curmudgeonly fanboy now Lois Lane versus Perry White this first off now I'm blanking on this guy's name how uh, Fuck it, Morpheus. Um, Lawrence Fishburne, sorry. Um, first off, I loved him in the role. But I like the writing in this scene. Lois rolls over just a little bit too easily, and Perry, Perry busts her on it. He's not an idiot. He didn't get to be editor of the Daily Planet by not being able to... Look, you just you got to have a good bullshit detector to do what he does. And he, even in this scene, he echoes Jonathan Kent's point. People are not ready for something like this. So, in an odd kind of way, even I don't even think they, have, they trade any lines with each other, but you can see that Perry's on the same side of the, uh, of the fence as Jonathan was, and... He just he reflects the prevailing opinion that I think a lot of people have, you know, or would have, about you know, um, about Clark if if he should ever decide to go public, you know, you can't put that genie back in the bottle. And dude, fundamentally, people are not ready; they're not ready for this. And Perry White wisely but incorrectly identified that as a problem. This scene with, with Martha, uh, 
I'm not adopted. I live. I lived with my uh, biological parents my whole life. I've had a relationship with them my whole life. I'm like I'm not adopted. So even so, there's something about this scene that just kind of hit home. Clark tells Martha something that he fundamentally believes to be good news, and Martha isn't really all that happy about it. She puts on a brave face, but this is not good news to her. And the farm. Look, I lo- like I said, I love Smallville, the show. I love Smallville. I love the way they did the Kent farm. You know, the, the colors and everything. It is just great. But this dilapidated house, and I don't know, there's something about this that just, it feels authentic. I don't know. Anyway, but back to the scene. Um, I just love how Cavill and Diane Lane just play off each other. kind of funny. I'm not going anywhere, Mom. In 20 minutes, he or less, he surrenders to General Zod. General Swanwick. Alright, now, obviously there's a pretty clear callback there to Kurt Swan, which I appreciate it. It's, it's more than just... Snyder is referencing more than just one thing here, and I just appreciated that, so props to him. I also like the fact that Swanwick is actually a very well-developed character. I mean, he sees Zod's ship just cruising around the moon, and he logically reasons, you know what? He's here because he wants to make a grand entrance. I mean, he's looking at this, he's evaluating it rationally, and he's realizing, I don't know, it's just like he's sniffing out, he's sniffing out Zod's bullshit, you know? And, you know, one military man to another, it just felt believable, somehow. And so, Zod's announcement, or I guess first sighting, this isn't his official making contact yet, that's still seconds away, I suppose. Clark watching football. I don't know. There's just something about that. Again, it just seemed authentic to me. I mean, he's raised in the country. You know, it's the Midwest. Of course he likes football. It just just is logical to me. It makes sense. God, that's a good moment. Uh, The uh, telescopic vision, uh, or night vision, whatever the fuck that was. That was just, that was cool. The kind of crash zoom that it did. I like that moment. And just the way that people react to Zod's announcement. Superficially, it it seems to strengthen Jonathan Kent's argument, and I guess Perry White's argument, that the people of Earth are just not ready for this. They're not ready for contact. And the fear. And it's, it's not people rioting. 
you know, running around the streets and smashing trash cans through store windows. Just the fear of it, the uncertainty. You know, it's not the pandemonium of it, the bedlam of it all. It's just the just the unknown. It's the fear. All the all. It's just it's on all their faces. They're hearing these things in their native languages, and they don't know what the fuck to think. They they just know that they're afraid, and. They don't know what to do, and it's just... This part, it feels very authentic to me. Now, the bit where it connects to RSS feeds... Look, I can I, I can appreciate what they're trying to say is Zod is basically com- commandeering all media, and that's fine, but seriously, RSS feeds? He can't even master a, a decent enough uh, compatibility between technologies to broadcast a good TV signal, but I'm supposed to believe he can... Uh, commandeer RSS feeds. Give me a fucking break. But I don't know. Whatever. It's not worth losing your temper over, but whatever. So. All these people being afraid, and then you have Lois and Perry trading those knowing looks. And again, it just goes back to, to Perry's point. I, it, it, he's just saying, I fucking, I told you so. I told you so. You know, and it's just this this whole next to the movie I mean I realize this is not the centerpiece of the film this is all a means to an end which in this case is Superman turning himself over to the military and then in turn them uh, turning him over to uh, Zod but uh, this this whole these just next few minutes it just I can't even say realistic because nothing like this obviously has ever happened but it just feels Again, authentic. It feels genuine to me, and I just, I just dig it. I like it. And then, and again, another very believable thing is that this would make Lois. I don't know as I'd go so far as public enemy number one, but she would definitely be a person of interest to the United States government. They would come looking for her, they would ask questions of her, and they would want to know what the fuck she knows. And of course, this whole thing leads into a little bit of a narrative problem with respect to maintaining a secret identity. It becomes just generally known. You know what, I'll deal with that when I come to it. People in the theater jumped at that moment when the Suburban zoomed onto the screen like that. A a few people jumped. I saw, I guess I hadn't talked about it, I saw the Walmart screening at uh, 7 o'clock the day before the film opened. And um, I was pleasantly surprised at how many people were there and how the movie kind of had them eating out of the palm of its hand. Now, you could argue that these are core fans. Anybody who goes to an early showing like this, is they're, they're going to be part of a core fan base. And, um... You know what? That may even be true, but it's just... I remember the way the audiences reacted to this in the two screenings that I saw. 
One of which, like I said, it was that Walmart screening at 7 o'clock the day before the movie premiered. And then the next one was exactly 24 hours later, the day the movie premiered, that Friday. And the reactions were largely the same. The way that people... This is another good moment. You know, Pete is not about to give Clark a hard time anymore. He just reaches out, you know. I liked that moment, you know. I liked it. And then Jonathan and Clark... Actually, unintentionally, this sort of raises... Yeah, Sullivan... Sullivan's whatever that is. Yeah, 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 Smallville, whatever. Anyway, uh, this whole thing, though, it does kind of raise a question. Is this where Jonathan works? I mean, do they just... Because, you know, I mean, this whole time I've actually assumed that Jonathan is still a farmer, but... Oh, it says truck and tractor repair. So maybe Jonathan's just up there shopping is really all it is, just getting his truck fixed. Okay, so maybe he is still a farmer. Wait, what am I saying? In the last flashback where he died... Outright said that he's a farmer. Duh. Okay, well, this is what happens when you run your mouth. All stream of consciousness, people. I don't have notes. I'm just reacting to what I see and hear as I see and hear it. Now, Clark sitting here talking to... Is this a Catholic priest? Anglican priest? I tend to think it's an Anglican priest, because that's a cross right behind him, as opposed to a crucifix, but... Yeah, that's... It's not like Catholics don't have crosses. And yeah, some kind of heavy-handed symbolism there with a picture of Christ right behind uh, uh, right behind uh, Clark. What does your gut tell you? Actually, you know what? The fact that the cross is empty, it's not a crucifix, it's an empty cross behind the priest, and then you see the Lord right behind Clark. Wow, there actually may have been some unintended... Or, unrealized symbolism there. I had not considered that. That's kind of handy. And this is... Obviously the ultimate point of this scene is, is giving Clark... I don't know. The encouragement, the fortitude, whatever you want to call it, the resolve not to run and hide, but to in spite of everything Jonathan Kent ever warned him of, to go public. This is ball game right here. Clark can't undo this. It goes against everything he was ever taught to do by his parents. And... This is not a small conflict for him. At all. I like this. I like this scene uh, interview. I don't know. I, and <laughs> I love the way he says that line too. It wouldn't have been much of a surrender if I was. I just love his delivery on it. I like Cavill. I like Cavill in the role. Originally, I championed uh, Army Hammer to uh, to play Superman before Cavill was even cast. Uh, looking at watching the movie now. Oh golly. Golly, golly. It's just cavil. Cavil here and back, dude. To here and back. This, this guy. 
he look first off i'm not the the christopher reeve groupie that other people are i mean look yeah christopher reeve did a great job he is definitely superman to that generation etc etc but i've never once thought that christopher reeve is irreplaceable in the role and i don't see why other people's lack of imagination should have ever made that the prevailing fan orthodox i mean i've all i've always thought that George Reeves, Dean Cain, Tom Welling, Gerard Christopher, John Hames Newton, Henry Cavill. They've, they all had something to bring to the table. And here it is, just nonchalantly. just stands up, bam, there it is. Breaks the handcuffs. It's just great. Love it. Love it, love it. But anyway, I've always thought that the idea of Christopher Reeve being so synonymous with Superman that you can't accept anybody else in the role... I just thought that's so short-sighted. First off, it lacks imagination, but it kind of pigeonholes Superman to me. And it's just sad. And honestly, I think that when you come right down to it, I think that that was the real opposition that some people had to this. You know, they wanted to have Christopher Reeve be their Superman now, always, and forevermore. And they weren't willing to do anything. It's almost like they thought of ad- appreciating anybody else in the role as being the equivalent of cheating on their wife or something. And I just thought of the whole thing was just very odd and very strange. And it's, whatever. It's, uh, what? Look, if that's if that's your preference, then it's not my business. For the first time, and probably not the last, Superman tells Lois. To retreat, and she doesn't completely obey. She does fall back, but she ends up inviting herself to the party in the end anyway, so I just love this moment. And I like these effects. You know, the whole point, the whole style that Snyder was going for throughout this whole film was a tone of realism. Now, for the moment, putting aside whether or not realism really serves DC characters, just putting that aside for a moment, Snyder went into this thing with the intention of treating it in a pretty realistic fashion, and sink or swim, rise or fall, he stuck with it. And a lot of the things that happen in this movie... Again, I shudder to... I'm not sure I want to use the word realistic because we don't know if this is how things would go, but it feels legitimate. It feels authentic that people would do and say these things. They would they would react in these ways. Now, this sort of leads... And I, God, I love this again. The exchanges, the exchanges between two militaries... I don't give a damn what you tell me. We're not to that line yet. We want Lois. He's like, no, that's not part of the deal. Anyway, and then the guy, we hadn't said it yet, Hardy, says, I don't give a damn what you tell Zod. And it's just two military types who are just feeling each other out. Here it is. I don't give a damn what you tell him. Or I don't care what you... Or whatever the line is. They're just feeling each other out. And I just... Again, I mean, I can't say the word realistic, but it feels authentic. They're not... There's not any bluster there, but there's a sense of no-nonsense toughness to it. And I just 
dig it. Anyway, so... As, as I said, realism. And the effects. Gotta love the effects. But... I'm not convinced that realism completely serves DC characters. I think it works fairly well for Mar- for uh, Marvel characters. Because, in a sense, they're already sort of science fiction to begin with. And science fiction lends itself to realism fairly easily. DC, and I mean this in the strictly pre-crisis sense of the word, the DC universe is not science fiction. It's science fairy tale. They're almost... Uh, other people have made the comparison to the Greek pantheon, but I don't... It just... That feels... appropriate, I guess. But they... DC characters, when you apply real-world logic and real-world rules and real-world consequences to them, you have to start coming up with real-world explanations for things that, by all rights, really should be gimmies. You know, Superman wearing the suit should be a gimme. The Flash wearing wearing his suit should be a gimme. On and on and on. These things should be gimmies, and they don't need to be justified in a more fantastical science fairy tale type of setting. You put this stuff in the real world, though, and everything needs to have a scientific basis and... I guess also some kind of a... some kind of a functional imperative. You know? Why does Superman wear the suit? Well, this movie doesn't go to laborious length explaining why he wears the suit, you know. I'm the only person I've talked about who... Or rather, I'm the only person I know about who's talked about the uh, threefold symbolism behind the suit. But still, you know, it just kind of feels... It just kind of feels like you're overthinking it, you know. And that's my real problem with with any kind of cinematic realism. This and, of course how much it limits you. You can have Superman go up against human supervillains. You can have Superman go up against Kryptonian supervillains. But when it comes to things like Mongol, Doomsday, uh, I don't know why people have a boner for seeing Superman fist fight Darkseid, but Darkseid, all of those things, it's harder to justify in a real-world type of setting. And the way that the pre-crisis era dealt with it was that Superman's arrival on Earth as a baby, it affected the Earth. It changed the balance of things, such that superpowered beings started to become more commonplace. But also the way that people behaved, the way that they thought, the way that they carried themselves, their morality, their worldviews, their philosophies. It became more sim- simplified and, dare I say, more comic booky. You know, that sort of black and white, easy comic book morality that Superman and the rest all easily fit into, as opposed to the the different levels of motive, the different levels of interpretation that are just part and parcel of the Marvel Universe. The minute you try to apply those same values onto DC, I think you're doing a disservice to the material. And... 
you know, all due respect to the people that that appreciate this, but I, it's just it just feels so wrong-headed to me. If this is what you want, go read Marvel. That's what it's for. But DC, until the time of Crisis on Infinite Earths, this was DC was the home of the science fairy tale, and things didn't need to have uh, a practical real-world explanation. Somehow, Clark putting on a pair of glasses was enough to fool people, even though he did nightly news reports that were watched by millions and millions of people. Somehow, a pair of glasses was enough to fool all of them. I'm fine with that. I don't need any kind of um, explanation for, you know, anyway. And Snyder was able to get away with it in this film. And, oh, I like Superman's outfit here. It's just that sort of all gray or all black or whatever that is outfit. And I think this is the only scene that it appears in because this is a dream sequence. But I, I wouldn't want to see Superman in this every single time. But I just kind of liked it for the sake of variety here. Superman is surrounded by death and is wearing death. He's a harbinger of death. He's the one that brought death to Earth. He is swaddled in death. He's being enveloped, literally, in death at the same time that... Anyway. Maybe I'm reading stuff into this that just doesn't belong. Maybe Snyder did that because he thought it looked cool, but I just see some important symbolism tied up in all that. And so... I have yammered on here for an hour and 20 minutes, so I'm not going to end my commentary here, but I am going to go outside and have a cigarette because I feel like I've earned it. So you guys, this may be a good time for you to just, you know, get up, take a bathroom break or something. I'll be back in anywhere from, I guess, three to five minutes, and uh, I'm just going to go out on my balcony and uh, have a cigarette, so please stand by.
Okay, so just to pick things up where I left off, Superman is punching the... He just punched off the lid of Lois's escape capsule. He's hoisting her out. And the thing exploded. He rolled over to protect her, etc., etc. So just to make sure that we're all still in sync. Again, I'm not trying to turn this into an Ar Arnold Schwarzenegger commentary for a total recall. I just want to want you guys to just be sure we're all still in sync. Now, as I was saying, um, I am not completely... Uh, convinced by realism in these films. Um, and this is one of the things that I really appreciated about Smallville, that it wasn't afraid to embrace the fantasy aspects of of what DC was pre-crisis. And it did so... It never. I don't think it ever embraced the science fantasy stuff completely, but it went further with it than I think anything else ever had, and that's... I think it's kind of evident that it's something that... Zack Snyder probably doesn't ever intend to do. You know? Um, he's... I don't think he's ever gonna... I don't think he's even gonna attempt it. And again, I'm not sure that really works to the benefit of... of... Uh, the uh, material. I don't know how the hell you make Diane Lane unattractive, but they did it. So, anyway. One of the things that worked for me about all of this was that the Phantom Zone escapees, at least, they were somewhat crippled by the powers. They couldn't use the powers as proficiently as Superman could. The whole point of the climax, and believe me, we're going to talk a lot about that, is that it's... the powers are as much a handicap to these uh, to, to, to these Kryptonians as it is uh, a strength. And here comes Superman. Fucking awesome! He just tackles him. Flying tackle. Crashes through the silo. And just beats the piss out of Zod. Don't mess with my mother. God, this is just great. I love... And this is... Be perfectly honest about it. This... I've said uh, that all I wanted from this movie was just a lot of action sequences, right? Um, the reason for that is because I didn't, and I guess to an extent still kind of don't trust Hollywood with, with Superman. If it's any other character... Whatever. I think they could probably do a decent enough job, but Superman, his his virtue, his heroism, his purity, his goodness, it just feels like it's fertile ground for some hack writer to come along and just completely sully it um, for no real reason. And so I don't think that happened here, contrary to what some people would argue, but... Um, what I ultimately wanted was to see Superman do Superman things. I wanted to see him fly. I wanted to see him use heat vision. I wanted to see him f fight somebody on his level. I wanted to see shit just get completely torn up. And that is what we're seeing here. You know, and it kind of feels like in a not in a negative way, but there's a sense in which this is sort of a referendum on Superman 2. This is kind of a sort of modernized Superman 2. And that what we're seeing is 
what's possible to do with Superman and action sequences within a modern uh, context and modern technology? Everything that Brian Singer could have and I would argue should have done, this is, it's on full display here. And ultimately, that's all I wanted from this movie because, like I said, I didn't trust Hollywood to write Superman. Now, I think they wrote a hell of a Superman here. Realism or not, I think that this is a, a tremendously good take on the character. But that's not why... That's ultimately not why I wanted to see this movie because I felt like I, I've got Superman comics and movies and cartoon shows and other things. I've got that stuff out my ears. What I don't have is, a, is or didn't have was a version of Superman where he just seriously cuts loose. He he just goes for it, and that's what this that's what this film gave us. It also gave us uh, a ridiculously well written Superman and other characters, but it it man it just nailed the action the action quotient just to the nines to the nines. I mean, look at this stuff: bullets tearing up. Uh, if it just tearing things up in, in, in Smallville. Uh, Superman fighting uh, these two goons. Well, actually, first, they're going to fight. Uh, these two fight. Yeah, here it is. Yeah, he's jumping up into the air. Bam! There it goes. And, uh, you know, and that's the kind of stuff I wanted to see in a modern Superman movie. I mean, who among us didn't watch Matrix Revolutions? And whether you like that movie or not, think when you saw Neo versus that Supersmith we can really reach for the stars now with and that's just an interesting look that Pete Ross gave Superman you know that he knows he, he knows exactly who Superman is you know so good that's just an that's just a good a good touch and it also kind of owes back something to the comics that of course, Pete Ross, at least in pre-crisis times, pre Pete Ross was the only person who knew that Clark uh, that Clark was Superboy, apart from Jonathan and Martha. And it just that moment worked so well for me. Just blink and you miss it, but there it is. And Superman getting thrown into the vault door again. This is the kind of shit I wanted to see all those years. This is the same opportunity that Brian Singer had, and he just completely pissed on. And God, I just love it. And And like I said, I mean, sometimes there's just not going to be a whole lot to comment on. And, you know, those fight scenes where it's just people beating the shit out of each other, there's really not a whole lot to comment on, except for the fact that, like I said, I mean, th it's the first time that something like this, these types of effects, this type of action was technologically feasible. Brian Singer could have done it, for whatever reason, didn't. And so, this is what Zack Snyder had to do. And he was a good choice to do it. He's, if, if he's proved nothing else in his career, it's that he can put together a, a very eye-catching uh, film. Yeah, jeez, he's just... They're all just beating the shit out of Superman. God, I love it. Oh, this is good stuff. Anyway, that's, that's what made... Uh, Zack Snyder is such a uh, 
just the perfect choice, you know, for this movie. Uh, he knows how to how to ramp up, you know, action sequences like this. I mean, there's a lot of Goyerisms here where, you know, the pacing is a little bit goofed up. I Look, just because I like this movie doesn't mean I'm blind to its flaws. And let's face it, the pacing in this movie is not necessarily everything it could be. But, um, anyway, so... But, you know, this is the situation that Brian... I keep saying Brian Singer. This is the situation that Zack Snyder found himself in because of the squandered opportunity that Brian Singer was given. Um, Singer just didn't... He didn't make an action film. He made... I don't know... A drama, I guess? Um, that had a few... That, that basically had a few action scenes in it, none of which were all that great, but... And then, the, yeah, there's Feyora just moving at super speed and taking down the soldiers. And again, these were the things that were not possible back in back in Richard Donner's day that, you know, how would a superpowered being really use the powers to fight? You know, how... What would that look like? And... Zack Snyder... He rebooted a hell of a lot more than the narrative. He rebooted the the cinematic aesthetics of Superman. You know what was possible. Uh, what you know what does it look like when 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 Superman flies? Sorry, that's just me opening a coke. What does it look like when Superman flies? What does it look like when when uh, he fights somebody with superpowers? None of that Richard Donner, Sissy Mary kicking and shit. Um, this is you know he's using John Wayne fisticuffs here, and I just love it. Oh, and then here's this little knife duel face-off. A good death is its own reward, and before they even have a chance to move in against each other, Hardy and Feyora, Superman just tackles Feyora, and uh, just takes her down. Takes her down. And, um, it's just, God, this works for me. This works for me on so many levels. It works. And the other thing, this is... Superman took a, a major risk in going public and giving himself up to the army, right? Uh, basically, in violation of everything that Jonathan Kent had ever told him. Everything that maybe even common sense might say, Superman took the risk. This is the scene where all that starts to pay... Well, not here, because what we see is Feyor getting scooped up and carried off, but... She's kind of hot, too. Ship zooms off. Yeah, here come the army guys into the burnt-out Sears department store. And this is the moment where Superman, for the first time, gets the sense that Jonathan Kent was wrong. The moment they lower their weapons, Superman realizes that the faith he he put in humanity it was beginning to pay off. It's not a done deal. Even by the end of this movie, it's not a done deal. But 
through it all. It just, and then and then it, Hardy is the one. Who, I think this is where he says Superman's not our enemy. It's something like that. This is. This man is not our enemy. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm fine. This man's not our enemy. Whatever. Close enough. Um. This is the moment where. What Clark has been taught his entire life is. It's starting to be, I don't know, undone. Weezinger Elementary School in this background of that picture in the scrapbook. Nice suit, son. Nice suit, son. That's a good line. It got a lot of uh, chuckles. Both of the uh, showings of, of the film that I went to is a good little chuckle from everybody involved. Okay, uh, Lois basically just shouted Clark right in front of a um, cop. What I'm going to assume is that the cop just doesn't know. Uh, he didn't hear her say that, so... Forget this guy's name, but he was actually... A, a he played a clone of Lex in the uh, season 10 premiere of Smallville. Uh, they couldn't get Rosenbaum back. So, uh, he just played an older clone of Lex Luthor. Obviously, this I'm sure most of you know, this movie is filled to overflowing with Smallville alumni. I guess in that sense, this dude is just a... He's just another brick in the wall. But uh, there was a big... There's a big conspiracy theory going around about him on the internet that he was actually going to play Lex in this movie. Obviously, that ended up not coming true, but that was, was a big theory. That's what it was. So, Yeah, this uh, army guy right here. Again, he's another one. He was in uh, season one. He played a football player. Uh, basically dropped a dime on uh, oh, Kevin Arnold's dad. And then he also played uh, a younger, uh, a young Dan uh, Turpin in uh, season eight. I think the episode was Bulletproof. So, so shit, I guess Superman's been haunting this guy's career for a long time now. This is one of those little moments in the film that I think I understand what Singer was going for here, but I I don't think most people would just stare blankly up into the sky at a, a descending alien whoosie what's this 
drill spaceship looking thing people would bug the fuck out I mean they would run for their lives at least a few of them I think everybody probably would I would and if you wouldn't you're not smart I think most people anyway so yeah And again, just the aesthetics of all of this. Terraforming. And what that looks like. It's... Again, it's just... It's rebooting the aesthetics of Superman. And what can... Maybe be shown in a Superman movie. And it's just... Very high stakes. It's not really clear how much of the city ends up getting demolished from this, but it just looks like it's a hell of a lot. As I'm sure a lot of you probably know, that was a source of no small debate, but... And I, online, and it kind of... I can kind of see both sides of it, to be honest with you. I mean, on the one hand... That's such a human line to ask. Such a what happens to us. But anyway, on the one hand, and here it is again, Superman. This is the only time in the movie. Superman. I just liked that. I also like that Lois is maybe not the one who invented that name. I'm really tired of that. But anyways, um, oh shit, I can't remember what I was saying. Well, whatever. Couldn't have been too important, I guess. This scene I like because it... Not didactically, not Chris Nolan style, where you have to have a flashback every two fucking seconds, but more, I guess, in a thematic sense, this sort of ties back with uh, Superman's conversation with uh, Jarrell on the ship at, uh, earlier in the, in the film, where he basically outlined... Superman's mission. It's not enough just to save these people. I mean, there is that too, but there's more, you know. Um, what he needs to do is equip mankind. He needs to lead mankind. And that's where this begins. The, the fact that there are two terraformers means Superman. there's only one Superman, and he can only be in one place at any time. That means that it's going to have to... It, humanity has a stake now in their own survival. In a lot of these uh, superhero films, it's common for uh, humans to just be sheep. Uh, you know, uh, they're lambs to the slaughter and they need to be protected. And that's not what Superman is up to here. He's leading the military, he's entrusting them to do their part of the mission. 
it would have, I think, been easy to simply write it where there's only one terraformer machine, and Superman has to take that out so he can save everybody and uh, take care of everything himself. Setting it up this way, where there are two, first off, it's Superman sacrificing literally all of Krypton. His ship, um, that key-looking thing, uh, the Kryptonians themselves, he's giving up. He's turning his back, basically, on his entire heritage in order to save mankind. But at the same time, he's also counting on humans to do their part. You know, uh, they have a stake in, the, in their own salvation, too. Whereas, in, and this is just, God, this is a good scene where Zod masters his uh, sensory powers, his, ex, his, his vision, his super hearing. Zod's a soldier. He's brought his mind and his body into submission. And through a just sheer will, he forced himself to master... Oh, and, he, and then how... God, I love... They did not have... Look, I understand that you, know, you only have so many pages in a script, and you have to be careful how you use them, but I just lament that... Jarrell and Zod didn't have more scenes together. I loved their conversations with the with each other because this is really their their major scene with one another. Um, and not that we're in it now. We're actually in Superman zipping around the terraform machine. And this is just again, it's rebooting the visuals of what's possible with Superman. The machinery, the the aerial the aerial uh, heroics, the flying, the effects. It's it's just great. It's just great. Love it. It's Zack Snyder expanding the canvas of what's possible. You know what what can be done in 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 a Superman film. I mean, as I say, he had to reboot a hell of a lot more than just the narrative, and I it bothers me that he doesn't get more credit for that. I'm not. By the way, I'm not attacking anybody who feels differently. If these movies aren't your... If this movie, I should say, isn't your thing... There's nothing I can say that can change... And this is another good moment. Perry leading everybody out. It's time to go, everybody. I just gotta love it. Now we're back to Superman. This actually kind of has a little bit of a... Not much, but just a little bit of a Fleischer flavor to it. You know, with the uh, aerial ballet and Superman getting wrapped up in those coils and everything. And I really like that. It's a good bit. It's a real good bit. I think the reason people are so sensitive, maybe, to the extent of damage done to the city is that in Avengers, what we saw were buildings that got, you know, seriously damaged, but I don't recall seeing buildings fall over. And I'm sorry, we live in a post-9-11 world. We all have a certain emotional baggage when it comes to seeing buildings get damaged to the point where they just collapse. All right, that On September the 10th, 2001, we would have had a very visceral action movie type of reaction to that, whereas on September the 11th, 2001, and then forward, we have a more emotional one. And I'm not 
trying to belittle anybody's outrage or objections to it. I'm just trying to explain it, at least as I see it, this layout of theory. I think when you strip everything else away, I think what people are really disturbed by is seeing buildings fall over the way that they do in this movie. And it's, it's all done in a pretty realistic style. If they had gone with a more science fantasy approach, oddly enough, I think they probably could have gotten away with it um, without as much grief. But this, this again, it sort of owes back to, I guess, the limitations of, you know, of realism. You apply real-world rules onto something, you then you must apply real-world consequences. That's something that Chris Nolan was inconsistent about at best in his Batman films and he Zack Snyder isn't going to get the same free pass that Nolan did and so people that was a good look too that when Zod terminated Jarrell's program part of him felt like he was killing Jarrell all over again and he just did not like that he'll do what he has to do but he doesn't like that and that that just works for me but but as I say real world Rules means real-world consequences. And really, the naysayers, what they really want is for Snyder to play by his own rules. He's the one that's directing this film. He's the one that's set upon the tone of realism, which means it's incumbent upon him to, in some way or another, deal with the real world outcome of this much damage being inflicted to a major uh, to a major city like this and so I don't begrudge you know the people who who objected to this I don't begrudge them that um, because on, there's a certain on a certain level I feel like they've got a point you know like I said I think some people went into this with the agenda to not like it or some people stayed out of it with the agenda not to like it. But when it comes to the amount of damage that was done to the city, part of me wants to play the, you know, it's just a movie card, it's just entertainment, it's an, it's an action movie. Just enjoy it for what it is. I, I want to play that card. And now here it is. This... This is a matter... This little shot here of Superman standing underneath the uh, terraform beam... Supposedly, there is a uh, moment where the special effects crew... Well, actually, I guess we're not th quite there yet. But there's a moment where the special effects crew supposedly temporarily substituted Christopher Reeve's face with... Uh, or substituted Christopher Reeve's face onto Henry Cavill right here. Right there. And... Um, it's just done so ambiguously. If it were to come out from Zack Snyder tomorrow, that, yeah, it, it, that's exactly what they did, it wouldn't be that big a surprise, but it, at the same time, it also wouldn't be shocking to find out that it really is just a trick of the light. You know, I don't know. It really could go either way. And maybe that's what they wanted to do. They didn't want to make it too obvious. But, I mean, it just sort of goes back, if it's true, it just sort of, and again, it's not worth getting pissed off about, but it would just, again, go back to the disproportionate influence that I think Superman the movie 
well, that franchise in general, and I guess Chris Reeve in particular, have come to exert over Superman that that Superman is Chris Reeve and Chris Reeve is Superman, and it just it bothers me because a that shortchanges the other actors who have and will play this part, but the other thing it kind of deifies Chris Reeve's performance in a way that I don't think Reeve himself would have approved of, you know? So, whatever. So, again, if Christopher Reeve is your favorite, look, I'm, of all people, I can't, I, 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 I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna shit talk that, but it just kind of feels, if it's an exclusive thing, I just, I just think it's a little short-sighted, but like I said, don't take this as any sort of slam on you or an insult or fuck you or anything like that. I'm just trying to express my point of view on this, and but I'm not necessarily attacking yours, if that's possible. So. This is one of those things where I kind of have to raise the bullshit flag. Lois Lane being permitted on board this ship that's basically going to kamikaze into the uh, the terraform uh, machine. The world sh shaper, whatever they called it. Um, and here comes Superman. He just perforates Zod's ship. Boom! I love it. And I love his rationale for destroying the ship. For... Krypton had its chance. And it's like on the one hand, I think that's a that's a very post-crisis attitude for Superman to have. They had their day. I think there's a more humanitarian aspect to it where you know, guys, you could integrate. You know, you're making this an either or proposition where it doesn't need to be one. That's not the argument that Superman makes. His his issue, his only issue is that Krypton had their chance, didn't work out, that's that, right? He doesn't make the, the argument that, you know, you guys you guys could integrate, you know, coexistence is possible. He doesn't make the moral argument that it doesn't matter what you're attempting to do, you don't have the right to commit planetary-wide genocide. It's, look, again, it's not worth getting pissed off over, it's just... I think the post-crisis Superman would very much have that have that attitude about it. Um, oh, Wilhelm scream! Yeah, I love those. Um, I think the post-crisis Superman would have that. You know, Krypton had its chance kind of kind of a viewpoint. Whereas a pre-crisis Superman, he would be more in interested in stressing the immorality of committing genocide. That's no more complicated than that. Oh, I, I like that too. Colonel Hardy, you could tell he wanted to at least try to fight uh, Feora, but he ended up doing a tactical retreat because ultimately fighting Feora was not what he was there to do. And um, it's just a good little moment. It's a good moment. Then, anyway, like I said, raising the bullshit flag, right? Lois Lane, being um, a civilian and somehow permitted onto this plane, a good death is its own reward. Again, he, it was a tactical retreat. I love it. But Lois Lane, as a civilian, 
being permitted on this plane that's going to do a kamikaze. I just don't think anybody would permit that, you know? Uh, I really don't. I There's not... There's, there's just no way. They don't... I don't see how they would take a civilian into that kind of a situation, you know? So, but this is a... And plus, I think it ended up killing off Dr. Hamilton, too, and what's the point of that? Um, but whatever. So, this is, again, another of those kind of realistic moments where this thing is... This terraformer is blowing up right behind uh, Superman. He's whisking Lois away from the danger. She doesn't have this... Uh, smile on her face. She's not all ooey gooey romantic. She's scared shitless and just wants to get the hell out of there. Ah, oh, that's a, just a good little flying shot there. Usually Superman flew like a bullet throughout this film, but now and then, especially when he was carrying Lois, he would usually come in for just this kind of graceful landing. And people found them kissing. Uh, just a hard thing to believe in, and I don't know why. I mean, they already they already established earlier that you know. I don't know as I go. I don't want to call it just friends or comrades or something, but there is a connection, and this is the logical place to take it. And plus, everything they've just been through together. I don't know. That's it's just not a hard thing for me to believe in. I guess that's the point. It's not hard to believe in. It feels authentic. And now, I think most of us were, when we first saw this, were expecting this is where the movie would end. And obviously, it's not. We have a confrontation that needs to take place now between Superman and Zod. Where Zod basically lays out his ambitions. A lot of things are wrapped up in this, but it just kind of feels like it's, even now, a bit too early to talk about them. So we'll talk about something else. Um, Superman suit. What I've heard and tend to believe is that Zack Snyder campaigned heavily to use the classic version of the suit, including the red trunks. Superman does not wear underwear on on his outfit. He wears red trunks. It's not underwear. It's not a pair of briefs. Trunks. Recognize. Supposedly, he and I actually read the quote where he said this. He said that he fought like hell to uh, to uh, get the. Um, the uh, red trunks included with uh, the suit and was overruled. Now, the reason I find that easy to believe is because the new 52 deleted the trunks. Smallville, season 11, the comic book, deleted the trunks. And um, obviously Man of Steel did as well. And this, it's one of those things, it just reeks to me of a larger corporate decision being made. This isn't Zack Snyder uh, trying to take the silly underwear away. Uh, he wanted to use the classic version of Superman's outfit and was overruled. But otherwise, he made a... Um, this was a suit that was as close to the comics as he was allowed to get. 
And, um... The suit... I like the design of it. I like... I, look, it's just an inescapable fact of modern Hollywood comic book films that the minute the superhero shows up, if he's not... You know, if he doesn't have, like, a robo-suit like Iron Man or Steel or whoever else, he's going to have some kind of an outfit, a bodysuit that has some sort of a texture to it and probably a um, an embossed uh, a chest a, a chest emblem as opposed to a uh, silk-screened uh, chest emblem. And that's just... That's where comic book movie... Uh, costume aesthetics that's that's this that's where we are right now and honestly even this is sort of a um a step above you know where things were because there was a point in comic book films where characters weren't even allowed to have costumes like this everything had to look like fucking motorcycle leathers and so you know even you know even even this just looks so much better than that now would i have preferred Basically, this outfit, but somehow including the red trunks. Absolutely. But that, obviously, is not on the menu, right? For better or for worse, Zack Snyder was not allowed to do that. And so... Oh, there's another little joke. He's about to get smashed with the girder. Boom! Zero days since the last accident. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. I love it. It's good. And then you get into the length of the cape. Now, this is very much a uh, John Byrne-looking cape uh, to me. I would have loved to have a uh, an emblem, a symbol, on uh, on the cape, even if it had been all black. You know, like uh, like it is in uh, Smallville season eleven. I would have preferred that, but obviously that's that wasn't the agenda here. And it is a kind of inconsistent thing where you have a rubber symbol on his chest and then do you put another rubber rubber symbol on his back? Or is this going to be silk screened on? And if it's silk screened onto the cape, then why isn't it silk screened onto the front? All of that. So it raises some kind of interesting uh, design. Oh, golly, look at this. This is just Superman zipping through the streets of Metropolis at super speed. I love it. And this is the kind of stuff about the old franchise it just pissed me off there's something about the minute Superman went airborne in um in uh the Christopher Reeve films he had to fly either at night or over a body of water or out in the fucking desert alright rarely did he ever just fly through the city and I think one of the one of just the coolest visuals in Superman's entire vocabulary is Superman flying through the city, right? And it's still, you know, sundown here, so it's not completely daylight. But still, this is a step in the right direction. You know, this is the kind of stuff that I wanted to see. And again, it also kind of feels like it's a referendum on Superman too. They had shots kind of similar to that, but they were just more antiquated. They were uh, quaint, I guess, is maybe the best way to put it. I'm not, again, I am not denigrating Superman 2. I... Or at least the, that battle in Superman 2. Um, that battle in Superman 2, the Metropolis Showdown, is a product of the 70s. It looks like a product of the 70s. 
And so if you crucify it for being a product of the 70s, you're a fucking idiot. Um, in its day, it was an extremely well-done action set piece, and it needs to be evaluated on that basis. And besides, like I said before, the Superman 2 Metropolis battle, huge parts of it hold up even now, you know? So I'm not going to listen to anybody talk shit about it, but this just seems like it's that taken to the next level. And here we get to the controversial thing. Superman kills Zod. Now... This, again, is one of those things that just broke the internet in half. And on the one hand, I can see why. And on the other hand, look. I've said before that super... Rather, that I don't mind so much if, if Batman were to kill certain people, right? He wouldn't... I don't think Batman would kill, for instance, just your average... Rapist, well, he may kill a rapist, but like your average, like purse snatcher or something like that, like a bank robber. I don't think he would necessarily do that. But, you know, somebody like the Joker, Batman would break that guy's neck and sleep like a baby that night. You know, it's, to me, it's just part of that character's psychology. Batman would kill at least certain people, all right? Superman, because of his powers, and because of the hope he wants to inspire in people, as well as the trust he wants for them to show in him, doesn't usually kill. But the way I look at it, that's more of an ideal than anything. Whenever you're facing an existential threat, which, let's face it, Zod, after the other Kryptonians had been banished back to the Phantom Zone, Zod is the epitome of an existential threat. He made it very clear, it's you or me. And Superman's actually about to tell Swanwick about being from Kansas, which is its own can of worms. Superman outright telling somebody that he grew up in Kansas, that's... I understand why people get mad about that, but, you know... Because it is sort of narrowing their search down. But, I don't know. I just... Whatever. I, I can... I Again, I don't think it's worth getting angry about, but... Uh, I can see it both... I can see both sides. But like I said, Superman, killing Zod. Um, I think Superman's pro-life policy, I regard that as more of... It's more of an ideal, alright? Superman won't kill a bank robber. He won't even kill Lex Luthor. He won't kill... Unless there's a, an existential threat that basically forces Superman to the point where it's going to be either you and this entire planet or it's going to be me. And if it came down to that, something that's truly a job for Superman, something that only he can do, if Superman doesn't take Zod down, nobody else is ever going to be able to. Superman would do it. 
And besides, like I said in my Superman 2 episode, the people who were bitching and complaining about Superman killing Zod in this movie sure didn't seem to mind him killing Zod in Superman 2 and then standing actively, or inactively, passively by while Zod and, uh, while Anon and Ursa died as well. And that's just a good moment. It's that little kid standing there in red, white, and blue. Yeah, symbolism isn't lost on, on me there, Snyder. Anyway, Superman killing Zod. It's, um, I mean, people just, you gotta pick your battles in life, you know? And if if that if it really bothers you that much, I want to see you complain about Superman killing Zod in Superman 2, okay? There's no need to have a double standard. One will do just fine. So, so now you got Clark. He's uh, riding in the elevator. He's about to um, go into the Daily Planet newsroom. I loved this moment. Um, and not just because of the obvious, you know, welcome to the to the planet, you know, and all that stuff. I mean, again, it's sort of a double entendre, sort of play on words here. Yeah, welcome to the daily planet, sure, but also welcome to planet Earth. But um, I just like just that glance that Lois gives him. She knows who he really is just at a glance. She introduces herself as if she doesn't. And just the eye contact they have, the way they're playing off each other, the smiles. It's just great. I love it. Love it, love it, love it. I mean, I realized this was supposed to be the end of the movie. But man, I could have watched hours of that. That's just great. I love it. It's great. And so, that's Man of Steel. Um, screenplay by David S. Goyer. I find that very easy to believe, actually, in some cases. Um, so... As I said in my Superman Returns episode, I waited a really long time for Man of Steel. The way I the way I see it, from the time I was six years old until I was 32. From the age of six to 32, I was waiting for a real new Superman movie. The best I got in the interim was Superman Returns. And Superman Returns' lasting legacy, apart from proving that, you know, Richard Donner's uh, film series really does belong in, belong in the past, the lasting legacy of uh, Superman Returns is giving us Man of Steel. Now, as I've said, I'm not convinced that getting Man of Steel was worth the price that I paid for it because I waited 19 fucking years to get a new Superman movie and all I had to show for it was Superman fucking returns so Man of Steel is a real Superman movie and we I very possibly wouldn't have it except for Superman returns but it's just at the risk of sounding like a whiny brat, it just it's kind of hard to feel grateful for that. But nevertheless, I like this movie. I like the values of it. Um, you know, Superman being so ardently of America. This is a very American Superman, and I just appreciated that. Um, I appreciated 
The casting, I thought uh, Henry Cavill absolutely killed it. And it's kind of funny that I'm only talking about this stuff now that credits are rolling. But there's just so many other things. The, I mean, I have so much to say about Superman on film. This is a big subject for me, and it actually feels kind of funny, but, you know, I'm only just now getting down to the characterization but um, and casting and whatnot. But honestly, if that stuff really deeply offended me, trust me, I would have let off with that. And there was a weird thing of... Um, now that I think about it, as far as casting goes, Lawrence Fishburne... Oh, now this is interesting. Cast. It says Clark Kent slash Kal-El, Henry Cavill. It doesn't say Superman. It just says Clark Kent slash Kal-El. Huh, how about that? Anyway, um, there was a sort of weird thing where um, people were almost racist about Lawrence Fishburne playing Perry White. And the minute I heard, and I don't want to sound like, you know, Mr. Politically Correct over here, but honestly, guys, I mean, like, the minute I heard that Perry White was going to be played by Lawrence Fishburne, I didn't even need to think about it very much. Instantly, I knew that was going to be pitch-perfect casting. Now, to be fair, it's not like Perry White really did a whole lot in this movie. I mean, he's only in a few scenes, but the scenes that he has... Fishburne makes the most of because let's face it Lawrence Fishburne is a fucking master uh, at his craft and it just it never crossed my mind that he wasn't going to do a good job with it the same thing for Amy Adams playing playing Lois it never occurred to me that she wouldn't kill it and of course she did she knocked it right out of the park and same thing and I think I've already this part I've already covered. Same thing with Henry Cavill. I I loved his take on the character. It was just very straightforward, very straight laced, very sincere, conflicted at times, but not dark. And that was the thing ultimately about this movie, the naysayers had that just kind of upset me. You know, was they kept wanting to say that this was a dark Superman, right? Now it's one thing to say that the movie, the film is itself a, some pretty dark shit. But for Superman himself to be dark, whatever the fuck that even means anymore. I mean, did, you, did did they just not see the same movie I did? Is that it? Because look, if somebody wanted to say that about uh, Brandon Routh in uh, Superman Returns, I'd listen. But throughout, Superman, everything, everything that Clark does and says throughout this movie, throughout this uh, film largely is born from a sense of hope and optimism belief in the human race belief in himself and I just don't see where I guess I, I don't understand the outrage and and again look if, if that was the way you feel please look the last thing I want you to think is that I'm calling you out or I'm picking on you or insulting you or anything like that. That's not the kind of show I want to have. You know, you're entitled to your own opinion, but I just, I don't see it, you know? And I... I gave this... Look, when I said that I went into this movie with no baggage, what I meant was, I, I wasn't biased on this one way or the other. I went into this movie with the intention of giving it a fair chance, but if you think I gave it a free pass, you're out of your mind. I went over this thing with a fine-tooth comb, all right? I'm not just mindlessly just taking whatever they give me. Well, 
because if guys, if that was, if that's how I felt, believe me, I would be on the same page as all of you when it comes to Superman two, when it comes to Superman Returns, when it comes to even uh, just other things. All right, we would all be on the same page. All right, I mean, I'd like to think the fact that I object to some of the things that other people seem to love, but I can accept this movie. What does that tell you? I mean, is is there maybe something else here? So, anyway, um, I'm running out of time. The point in all of this is, I thought that this was a very good movie. I thought it was a film that was very much worth making. I enjoyed it. This is not, by any stretch of the imagination, the Superman movie I would have wanted to make. But guys, newsflash... The Superman movie that I want to make is never going to fucking see the light of day because I'm the only one who would want to watch it. And so, you know, just... I'm not saying, you know, just take what you... Take what take whatever you get, but this was a good faith effort by everybody involved. It was successful. The film was actually profitable. Unlike Superman Returns, this movie actually made money at the box office, which, by the way, is why it's getting a sequel. And I just see more to be happy about here than to than to be angry about, to be upset about, you know? I mean, it just kind of feels like it's picking that shit out of Pepper to sit there and go over all this movie's problems and everything when, in the grand scheme of things, it set up a shared universe, a Superman who's recognizably Superman, who does recognizably Superman things within a recognizably Superman type of context. End of the day, that is so much more than I ever hoped for from this movie that I guess I don't see the point of harping on, you know, the the occasional missteps that the film made and the quibbles that I have with it. Now, again, this is not the type of film I would have wanted to make. This film is very much set in a, a sort of realistic light type of uh, setting, and that's just not what the DC Universe is to me. Never has been, never will be. I think, uh, I think Superman and all DC characters are at their best when they're in a sort of operatic type of science fantasy. But on its own merits, there's a lot of shit here to, 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 to enjoy and be, be impressed with, to be, to be, as a Superman fan, to be proud of. And I just implore you, if... And it's funny to me, I'm doing this during the credits, but whatever, if you just, for whatever reason, skipped ahead, or if you've only listened to the commentary and not actually watched the movie. If you haven't seen this movie, if, or if you saw it once, or it just didn't like it, whatever, give it a chance, alright? I've got the most broad definition of Superman of anybody that I know. I like a lot of things Superman that are just not politically correct to like when it comes to Superman, as well as a lot of more traditional Superman stuff. Superman the movie, the comics, you know, the the Golden Age, Bronze Age, Silver Age, Burn Age, all that stuff. I like all of it. I like Lois and Clark. I like the Fleischer cartoons. I like Superman the Animated Series. I like a lot of what I saw in the Reeve films. If I can get on board with all of that and Smallville, it's not too much to ask that you guys give this another shot. I'm asking you to. <laughs>